uh, launch, ignite, navigate, accelerate to kind of capture the essence of what was in each phase. And over time, I uh, trans translated that into the Apollo method for market dominance. But sitting on the plane, you know, I looked at that, I said, oh my God, all my clients need this. This is what all companies need to be doing, especially those where the market can't easily see what makes you different, particularly services and, and technology offerings. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is our Be the Go-To mini-series with Teresa Lina. Uh, Teresa, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to kick off, I want to tell everybody that they should be going to apollomethod.com to sign up and check out the book and, and all of that. You know, I in my research and learning more about you and listening to some of your other interviews, it was really interesting to hear about, you know, being at Accenture and growing a business to helping grow that team to 850 million in revenue in less than a decade. And and the work that you've done helping teach programs at Stanford and at startups and all these different things. And I think what I'm kind of excited about for today is to go a little bit deeper into this book, Be the Go-To. Um, so I know we've talked a little bit about having part one here being about differentiation. You know, that's something that people talk a lot about, but I'm not sure everyone has really thought as deeply about it as you. What what does differentiation mean to you and, and what would you have to say about it? Yes, well, the, the big problem that a lot of people have in their, whether it's individually as an entrepreneur or a solopreneur or even as somebody looking for a job and certainly for companies, is that they think they're unique. And yes, at a deep level, we all are. We're all snowflakes. And I'm not referring to the latest politicized version of that term, but literally, when you get up close, we are all truly unique and different. But when you step back, we all do look and sound the same. And it, the, further, the further back you step, or the further back someone steps from you, the less and less obvious those differences become. And af after a point, you all look and sound the same. And so most people don't fully appreciate seeing from the other person's point of view just how much we do look and sound like everybody else. And I ran into this with, even, even at Accenture, after I had left the company, I came back as a consultant and I was working with different business units around the firm globally. And they would, I would ask, well, what makes you unique in your market? And they would start telling me, oh, we have the best people of all the management consulting firms. We have the best technology. We have the best project management methodologies, yada, yada, yada. And I'd say, now, truly, who doesn't say that? What other company goes around saying, oh, well, we actually hire subpar people or, oh, yeah, we, we don't have particularly great project management methodologies, you know, so we think we're so different and yet we aren't. And I really learned this. I talk about it in the book, going to acting auditions and I would show up thinking, oh, this part, I am made for this part. You know, I, I, this was in my 20s. I was working for Accenture and then at, and in the evening I would take acting classes and I got to exercise my creative side in ways I couldn't at work. 
and I would go to auditions for fun and I'd show up and I would see the room full of a hundred other women who all basically, yes, if you looked closely, we, we looked completely different. Sometimes we were different ethnicities, we were different heights, wearing different things, et cetera. But if you step back and from the viewpoint of the casting, uh, the casting director, there was just nothing distinguishing us. And it was very hard to distinguish ourselves. So the issue is how do you stand out in a meaningful way? And in business, you know, I actually did a lot of research to try to understand this. And I found that the companies that are most successful at this, they choose a particular issue to really specialize in. And you hear about this, you hear about the concept of focus and narrowing down, but they choose a particular area to really become known for. And then they choose a problem or an opportunity that they build themselves around and they become the go-to, their goal is to become the the go-to for that market problem and for that area. And they develop a point of view around that problem and they develop a unique approach to solving that problem. And that's sort of the beginning of what you need to do to really differentiate is to really figure out what it is you're gonna stand for in the marketplace. So, you know, I think that this is something that uh, gets talked about a bit, but I'm not sure people really internalize it as much as they could. You know, I, it makes me think about the the band, The Grateful Dead, right? Like I not necessarily, you know, I never really listened to their music growing up or anything. But when I hear about like making $380 million as a band, right? When, you know, they didn't, they didn't like make their money selling records, uh-huh. right? right? And you hear about this, like, you know, at that time, concerts concerts weren't how bands made their huge money internationally, right? It was it was record sales, and yet they're like encouraging people to bring recording equipment to their to their gigs and letting them all record it. And they like they built their own tribe, they build this family. Uh-huh. And and that quote later about don't be the best, be the only don't be the best one out there, be the only one out there. Like yeah, yeah. how great is that? Yeah. Now, I I actually haven't studied them. I grew up, uh, you know, with a lot of people who were deadheads. And so they they actually remind me of the Harley Davidson story. And I do discuss that case in the book. But, you know, the Grateful Dead, they're a great example. So, you know, in of all the rock bands out there, yes, they put different rock bands put out different great music. But what made the Grateful Dead special is they were a lifestyle. So they they really were selling counterculture and selling being off the grid and being just letting go of all convention. And so they were they weren't out there selling music per se and hence bring your own recording equipment, right? They were they were selling, you know, the problem. I mean, if you want to put it in business terms, the problem they were solving is people who felt disenfranchised, people who felt like they didn't fit in, people who felt constrained by conventional society who wanted to really break out from that. So they were selling freedom in many ways. And so their point of view was, hey, let it all hang out, be loose, be free. Let's all commune with each other. And they created, they had not just their music, but they had, they built a community of believers in what they do. And I actually talk about that in the book. That's a key strategy for how companies will stand out and really uh, create momentum in the marketplace around what it is they do and build loyalty. So they had 
not just a fan base, but they had a family and they treated these people like family. I have a friend who actually hung out with the Grateful Dead for a little while uh, with the band members. She, you know, I guess you could call her a groupie, but she's actually a surgeon now. So <laughs> she, <laughs> she wasn't necessarily a groupie in the conventional sense of the word, but she had a relationship with one of the band members for a while. And, you know, the, the they were a family and those band members were extremely accessible to their fans. And so, yeah, that's a great example of how they, in, in many ways, they did apply what I talk about in the book. I call it the Apollo method for market dominance because the, the metaphor I talk about a lot is what the Apollo space program did to put a man on the moon and overcome some extraordinary challenges that were going on at that time. But the Grateful Dead really did do the, the process that I talk about in the book. They did each of the four phases. And as a result, they had this incredibly loyal and growing group of people who literally, without, without any money, somehow found a way to travel from city to city following the band around and feeling you know, like a tribe. Well, I'm I'm interested, you know. So I've been fascinated with with the Harley Davidson story. I'm I'm a we built a house out in the mountains out in Park City, so I'm a dirt bike guy, not a Harley oh, okay. guy. Okay, but but you know, as I hear stories, um, we had Chris Neeland who who runs the the Gathering, the cult brand thing up in Canada at the Vance Springs Hotel, where they oh, bring uh-huh. in these cult brands to talk yeah. about it. And you know, finding out that like Harley Davidson marketing folks spend like eighty percent of their budget on on the tribe instead of on new client acquisition, you know, and hearing like this, like deep commitment to the experience of being a Harley owner, you know what I mean? Like that's fascinating to me. But my question, I think for you, you know, you get to do all this fancy stuff, teach at Harvard, all this cool stuff, right? So my question is, what about, you know, I look at at Greystoke at our new investment fund and some of my friends who are looking like they're going to be our first investors, one of them, one's a home building company owner, one owns an ad agency, you know, there's a lot of chances to blend in. One one owns a big insurance company, right? Yeah. Uh, brokerage, right? And they've got so many chances to be different in the like the facts and features, but not like the wholesale difference. Right. right. When when you think about folks like that, they're they're millionaires. They're doing great, but there is a lot of chance for them to be more of a me too instead of a go to. What what do you do to help somebody in those spaces? Yes. I mean, you know, even when somebody's successful, once they become a me too, uh, you know, you really are a downward on a downward trajectory in a, in a crowded market. And I actually have a, a diagram in the book called the commodity curve, which shows how as more and more people enter the market, uh, if you haven't successfully differentiated, you slide your way down this logarithmic curve toward uh, lower and lower profits. And that's really the the big issue here is the more you look and sound like everybody else, the more price starts to become the distinction and the more you have to start chipping away at price in order to compete. So because customers will force that on you, buyers then have all the power and they push you down on prices. So then the question is, how do you create that perceived quality, that perceived, that, you know, clear differentiation. And it, this does apply to, to, like I said, individuals, small business owners, entrepreneurs who are just getting started. In fact, people just getting started, if they do what's in the book from the get-go, they can save themselves a lot of grief and a lot of wasted effort that uh, they might otherwise do that would just be 
fruitless for them. And, you know, I, I developed this to solve my own problem. Uh, you may have heard me talk about this before, but I was, I had a, a consulting firm. This is, you know, after I'd left Accenture. And I was working with companies that knew me well, executives who knew me and, and my people well, they understood what we were capable of, but they started pushing me down on price. And they would say, Teresa, hey, I can get the skill over here for, for half of what you're charging. Why should I be paying you guys so much more? And I try to explain it, but it was a struggle. It was, it was a real strain. And I was relying heavily on the relationship to keep that going, but that was only going to take me so far. Meanwhile, I looked around and I, I remember being on the phone with one of my subcontractors and she was saying, oh, my friend so-and-so, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. She's charging $50,000 a day for what she does. And, and my colleague and I were both marveling at this because the, the woman we were talking about did not have any better credentials than we did. If anything, her credentials were a little less, you know, were, were, were not as strong. And I just remember I was jealous and ad admiring at the same time. You know? <laughs> On one hand, I was like, oh, my God. You know, I was just so envious. And at the same time, I was full of admiration. Like, wow, that is inspiring. So I decided to figure out, how does that happen? What, what do people do differently who are successfully? What did we do at Accenture? You know, we... We took it for granted in many ways because we already had a, a brand that we were working. At the time, it was part of a, an accounting firm called Arthur Anderson, which had at that time a very strong reputation in the market. But I really wanted to understand what is the difference. And I set about to study it and have continued to study it all these years. But I remember being on a plane to Chicago when it all kind of coalesced. And here I am, this small consulting organization. So it applies to any size company. But I jotted down these four columns of strategies that I would need to execute in order to to do to cover the all my bases to 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 do the strategic positioning part, to do the building my reputation in the market part, to do my creating a meaningful offering part and selling that to clients. And then the fourth piece in changing and staying ahead of where the market was so that as people started to catch up and copy me, I could be ahead by a few, a few paces and also adapt to changes going on in the market. So there were these four columns and I put at the top of each column, uh, launch, ignite, navigate, accelerate to kind of capture the essence of what was in each phase. And over time, I uh, trans translated that into the Apollo method for market dominance. But sitting on the plane, you know, I looked at that. I said, oh, my God, all my clients need this. This is what all companies need to be doing, especially those where the market can't easily see what makes you different, particularly services and, and technology offerings. Can, can we talk about that? thing that you just said about the market recognizing what's different because right. this is actually like a slight obsession of mine i'm a my our listeners know i'm a real audiobook nerd and you know i i think about books differentiate or die by jack trout or positioning by jack trout zero to one peter thiel different by the harvard professor young me moon blue ocean strategy you know like there, there's a play bigger i feel like is a mm -hmm. good one mm -hmm. you know newer and i think that as business owners we or founders or whatever entrepreneurs we can sit around the conference table and drink our own Kool-Aid so easily about how special we are, how different we are, you know, 
And I feel like those books have really helped me get more honest. I mean, look at us in the in the investment space. There's tons of REITs out there. There's all sorts of different exactly. kinds of real estate investment funds. Like That's right. the chance for us to to disappear into the sea of sameness is huge. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. And and so for us, like what we're really working on is being. So I've thought about this a ton. So a starting our own media company, trying to be our own Bloomberg. And I'd love your consulting on this. Okay. So okay. growing our own mini Bloomberg consulting firm is uh, our uh, media company is one aspect of it. But really using that, I mean, what we're looking at is could we be the only investment fund that will help entrepreneurs make enough more money to buy passive income from us? Instead of just be out there doing the sales pitching, like we are actually in their life running, you know, running CEO meetups, like trying to provide them information of the kind of tips and hints and like basically creating a community and a tribe for them and like offering some free consulting for services, creating books and all sorts of self-service options and like not just showing up after they've got the money, but but like hold their hand for years as they try to get more money as a relationship building thing. So just like off the cuff, what what kind of problems would you see with a strategy like that? Or what kind of comments do you have about a strategy like that? Well, let's back up. So what what so the the market you're talking about is entrepreneurs. What within that? So that's a big bucket. Within that, is there a more narrow uh, definition of entrepreneurs you're aiming at? So, instead, because you know, because there are a lot of firms and people who serve that market and try to do some of those things for that market. So, who specifically are you going yeah. for? Well, and so. Uh, and get wider for just one second. If you look at our big competitors, the Blackstones and the you know the the large multi-billion-dollar REITs, largely selling to pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, and selling through like you know Merrill Lynch, private wealth management folks. And so our first step was let's just not even sell to the clients those big guys. Let's go for completely different clients. Those big guys uh-huh. don't really care about right. right. So that's right. step one. Uh-huh. But then we are in this space of, you know, whether it's the online e-reads or whether it's like your more local real estate fund that's trying to, you know, have dinner or go golfing with, with you know, the local millionaires, right? So for us, I would, I would say it's the, you know, millionaire entrepreneurs, like millionaire founders who are probably within 10 years of my age, either direction, you know, kind of, well, I would say maybe mid-30s to mid-50s, probably. And, you know, I don't know that how well we've got this defined. It's just been mostly thinking about my friends, you know, the people I've been in CEO clubs with for the last 10 or 15 years. And I don't know, great, I probably need to put it in writing, but I, I'm just thinking about a few hundred people on my network, on my co-founders networks as like lookalike audiences to our existing, you know, LinkedIn connections or something. Uh-huh. I don't know. I probably need to, do I need to define that better? Well, I think it's useful unless that number you have in mind is adequate. If that's your whole market, you know, that might be a different story, but it's useful. What I, what I recommend, I talk about it in the book, is a process for market selection. And part of that is market is a, a process of elimination. So think about who it is you're serving and then cut away. You kind of did this in the beginning. So you cut away parts of the market that people are already serving parts of the market that you can't really distinguish yourself in. And then when you're left with that piece where it's a a well-defined market that now, okay, nobody else is really serving these folks. Um, we, We have a great overlap with our strengths and what they need. If you think of a Venn diagram. And then once you have that, take that and turn that into a dartboard 
with the bullseye of which which segment of that market is your center bullseye that you want to go for first and defined as once we get these people, we have a better chance. I'm going to use my hands here. Think of a dartboard. Once we get these people, we have a better chance of that next concentric circle of the, the next group and then the next group and then the next group. These people influence these people who influence these people, you know, as yeah. you work your way outside the dartboard. That helps okay. you focus your early efforts because you don't have the resources to go after everybody at once. Yeah. Okay. So I would say for that, for us, is probably entrepreneurs who either recently had an exit, they recently sold the company, or who are, are making great profits. So it's like, Entrepreneurs who recently sold the company, now they're very cash rich, but they, they want to buy some passive income, right? Okay. And, they're, and they are kind of those like highly independent folks who don't buy investments from financial planners or stockbrokers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and v- related but different is the, those millionaire entrepreneurs who are, they're making great money at what they're at doing now, but they've got this anxiety about having too many eggs in one basket. And yet they don't, they don't buy stuff from financial planners and stockbrokers. And so they've thought about buying other companies, but then they realize it's just going to be a lot of headaches and they think about buying real estate, but they don't want the headaches of being a landlord. Okay. That's, so that's what, kind of what, what I've been is, thinking. What is their fundamental problem? In a nutshell, you kind of just said it, yeah. but in a nutshell, what's Anx- their problem? Anxiety, anxiety over financial security. Okay. They, they want to have, they don't want to have to think about money ever again. And even though they're rich, they have to think about it all the time because they're always worried about customers dropping them or employees screwing stuff up or they're they're very wealthy but but they are not low stress when it comes to finance okay and what do you think they need to do independent of you if you were even no longer in the business what would you say what you need to do is well it's literally why i built the firm is because this is the product i wanted to buy like i want to go try crazy elon musk richard branson stuff but i want to quit stressing my wife out and my kids over like the roller coaster we've been through you Uh know 20 years of entrepreneurship. So I wanted to just buy enough, like highly secure passive income that'll last for decades, that when I want to go try some crazy idea, my wife and family are, are completely secure. The lifestyle doesn't change. If I win or fail, my lifestyle doesn't change. And so I think that's, I look at, so we, we have a consulting arm of Greystoke as well. And we, we coach a bunch of CEOs on stuff similar to this. And it's kind of an outgrowth of what I wanted and what I see them wanting is they're successful. Things are getting ahead, but they're just, they talk to me a lot about being worried that what if it all goes away next month? Okay. So part of, part of your point of view is, you know, you've, you've got this tremendous success talking to your market. You've got this tremendous success. You're financially secure right now. I lock that in, lock that in for the long term. How do I make sure that stays forever so that all my hard work doesn't go to hell in a handbasket with the next downturn or with my next fancy, exciting project. And so what you need is a base of steady passive income that you don't have to think about, you don't have to do anything about, that's low risk, high return, which sounds impossible, but yes, there are ways to do that. And get that steady base so that you never have to worry about money again. And then you can go figure out what you want to do for fun. Is that basically the the message? Yeah. And to be honest, we're not even emphasizing the high return. We're saying like, hey, you know, real estate pays a higher return than say, a you know, like a REIT with, mm-hmm. with low leverage still pays, you know, double or triple uh, the dividends that say an S&P 500 stock is paying right now. They're paying about 2% and REITs are averaging, you know, 4 to 6% in distributions, uh-huh. right? So I'm not talking about making double digit returns, but I am talking real safety where you've got real professionals spending 40 hours a week, teams of 
professionals spending 40 hours a week babysitting this for you. Mm-hmm. And you can really just like sleep well at night, mailbox money kind of kind of a thing. Okay. So what we just what we're working ourselves through here actually is the launch phase of the Apollo method for market dominance, where you figure out what market you really want to specialize in, what problem you want to own in that market. So you want to specialize in these uh, independently wealthy entrepreneurs who want security going forward. They've done the hard work, they've taken all the risks, now they want some peace of mind. And so your point of view is, look, you know, set yourself up for peace of mind for the rest of your life, regardless of what you might want to go do for fun. And what you need then is, you know, you need a, a way to have steady passive income that is going to give you that steady base and but you need a you know with a team that that's all they think about they focus on just your kind of profile not all kinds of mixed profiles where they're not they're they're you know taking they have lots of different types of client risk profiles in their in their portfolio instead you ought to be taken care of by somebody who's taking care of other people just like you so that would be your advice to them is get into something regardless of what you offer your advice is is essentially mm. that is that correct Yeah you know what I love about that is almost all of my competitors are run by some finance guy who you know he went to Harvard then he got a job in a finance firm he built his way up and eventually decided I can probably do what my boss does mm-hmm. and like his fund is his you know their their fund is the first entrepreneurial thing they've ever done in their life like mm-hmm. they're really like career finance guys who now run a fund uh-huh. where we are we are built by like lifetime entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who happen to hire finance guys who are better than us to do the to do the day-to-day work right but like by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs instead of you know by you know kind of corporate ladder finance propeller heads who happen to run a fund you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway yeah yeah well that's an important part of this so when 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 somebody is working on their point of view, and this is an important part of the Apollo method for market dominance that I talk talk about in the book. This is an important part of differentiation. You know, a lot of people get out there, they start talking about their products and services. People don't care about you. They care about them. What's in it for me? So if you come out into the market talking about a point of view on the problem that they're facing, they realize, oh my God, finally, somebody gets it. Somebody finally <laughs> understands what I'm dealing with. And, and then, you know, you come out with this point of view on what they should be doing. It's advice. And you can give that advice because you've studied this more than anybody else. You've focused on this more than any other competitor who might also happen to serve these types of companies or individuals. No, you focus on just them. So they know that uh, it's just like going to a doctor. Who do you want doing your open heart surgery? Do you want a general practitioner who also deals with diabetes and, and blood pressure issues and, and, and shingles? Or do you want an, a cardiac, a, a cardiologist, a, and not just any cardiologist? You want somebody who's done open heart surgery 50, 50 million times and has seen it all and knows what to do in every situation. And so, this is what you're effectively doing with your business by focusing on this profile of person, and you understand their problem. You can relate to their problem. You've studied it. You've lived it. And uh, so they know coming in that they're, they've got somebody who really understands what they're dealing with and not only knows what's happening now, but you're looking out on the horizon to what's coming down the pipe. You specialize in this problem. You, and this is what I, in the, 
in the title of the book, it's how to own your competitive market and charge more and have customers love you for it. But the own your competitive market part is you own it because you own the problem. You take part of the launch phase. uh, The first piece of the methodology is put your stake in the ground and say, I want to own this problem in the market. I, I'm taking this on for you guys. I'm going to study this. I'm going to own this. You know, Tesla has done that with electric car technology. They basically said, we care deeply about getting the planet to move to electric, to electric cars. And, you know, we're, we're at the forefront of electric car batteries, a battery technology. They have companies focused just on this. You know, they're, they're really paying attention to the taking things forward, not just figuring out what we can do to throw a product out in the marketplace and, and incrementally improve it over time. So what you've done is you've said, I'm going to own this. And that is part of with the media and with helping them as entrepreneurs and all these other things you described you're doing. That's all part of the offering. And, you know, we can get into that when we talk about the navigate phase some other at some other point. But you you're creating a, a full a full solution to the problem, not just some product that you're throwing out there and salespeople are going out there and it's part of their grab bag of tools they pull out of their toolkit to hand to the customer and say, oh yeah, yeah, what's your problem? Oh yeah, yeah, we've got something for that. And you reach over and give them the hammer. No, you know, this is what you really specialize in. And this is what, you know, companies, individuals, contractors, you see, you know, certain contractors that you have come help you at your house. You can tell they really are passionate about what it is they do. I talk in the book about, I had this old Mercedes diesel sedan and, you know, it was a total, it wasn't even quite an antique. It was not a cool car, but I loved it. And I took it to this mechanic, Fred, in San Francisco, who was passionate about these cars. He knew everything about where the technology had been, where it was going. You know, he lived, breathed, ate this stuff. And I loved going to him and I would have paid him whatever it took to take care of my car because I knew I was in good hands with him. So, you know, that's effectively your strategy that you described. Yes, it is. It is strong because you're showing these people that you're not just in it for the buck. You're not just in it to you know, be transactional. You really want an ongoing relationship and you care deeply about their ongoing success. So they're going to feel much more secure coming to you than they would just to any old private equity firm who's just going to collect their fee for managing their money and not really feel true ownership for their success. You don't, you know, sharing in their uh, a sense of success with them as you make them more money. I love it. Well, this actually feels like a great transition into into uh, part two of the mini series about point of view. So we'll. We'll end part one here, folks. Everybody, please tune in to part two. We're going to continue with this train of thought. Get Teresa to teach us about point of view. Thanks, everyone.